Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 255. 255. Can you believe it? My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm very glad you decided to join me here. Uh, And I want to, um, in my first opening segment here, talk about some of the nuts and bolts of, of the hot topic of the hour, which is Christian nationalism. Some of the nuts and bolts. For many people, this is a church and state issue. They don't, they don't like the idea of commingling church and state. And, of course, neither do I. The separation of church and state, or the distinction of church and state, was a Christian development. So, I'm all about distinguishing church and state. I don't want, don't want uh, congressmen deciding church discipline cases, and I don't want uh, clerics deciding economic policy. So, what, what are we to do? Well, here's the problem. This issue has gotten frightfully muddled because of a basic confusion. The separation of church and state is talking about the separation or the distinction between two different kinds of government. Right, we're talking about governments. We're talking about the institution of the church over here, as say the Church of England in England, and the government of England over there. And because they have an established faith, because the Church of England is the established Church of England, you've got these two institutions that are cheek by jowl together. But to want to distinguish and keep from mingling church and state, you have to always remember that you're talking about governments. That's a separate issue from whether or not we want to combine morality and state. Do we want the state to be moral? Do we want the state to be righteous? Do we want the state to do good things and not bad things? As in, say, not murdering millions of unborn children, as, for example, not giving their blessing to same-sex mirages, that sort of thing. Do we want a separation of righteousness and state? Well, I sure don't. But as soon as you say uh, the state should be moral or the state should be righteous, The obvious question presents itself immediately, which is, by what standard? Righteous according to whom? What standard are we using? Is it Muslim? Is it Christian? Is it Hindu? Is it secular? What what standard are we using in order to evaluate whether or not the state is being righteous? Now, as a Christian, I would like the state to have a correct definition of righteous as opposed to an incorrect definition of righteousness. Maybe that's just me, but, uh, you know, I would like them to get it right. I don't want them to kill, uh, you know, haul the Jews off to concentration camps and call it righteous. It's not enough to call it righteous. It's got to be righteous. So, but as soon as you make a moral claim, it has to reside within a moral system. You can't make moral claims and apply those moral claims to the civil government and have those claims just sort of float down from the sky from nowhere in particular. Moral claims arise out of moral systems. 
There's no such thing as a tenet of morality that's floating around like a <laughs> like a quark or something. Moral claims, moral standards arise out of moral systems. And that means at some level, if you want the state to be righteous, if you want the state to be good and not evil, then you're going to have to have a state that is evaluated in the light of a particular moral system. Now, if you throw all moral systems into a pot and sort of boil it down to the lowest common denominator, that itself is a moral system, right? That, that itself is a broadly ecumenical moral system. But then you've got, well, how do, how do we boil it down? Do we come out with the Christian monogamy or with the Muslim polygamy? Do we come out with, uh, w- what's the end result of this? So, a lot of our trepidation, a lot of our concern about something like, that sounds scary, like Christian nationalism, is, is the result of our refusal to think carefully. We have to walk through this sort of thing carefully. We listen to cliches and bromides instead of follow, following the logic of the thing out to the end. Suppose Senator Snoutwurst, you know, running for re-election, is um, discovered to be a member of a particular church. And let's say a hostile reporter asks him at a news conference, uh, we discovered that you belong to the ultra-conservative XYZ church. You know, let's say it's a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran or a fundamentalist chapel or something like that. And let's say he attends there. And he's challenged about this. And how will your faith impact what you do or do not do if you are reelected? And Senator Snoutwurst, if he knows his response to the secular catechism, is going to say something like, because he's going to, this is not a principled man, as you will see shortly, but he's, he's going to conform to whatever the current demand is. He's going to answer this catechism question properly, according to the catechism. He's going to say something, my faith, uh, which is a very precious and personal thing to me, is something that I will not allow to drive or affect my behavior or decisions in any way if elected again to be your representative in Washington, D.C. And everybody politely nods, okay, that was good. That was, he answered that the way he was supposed to. He is not going to let his personal faith, which is indeed precious and personal to him, it's not going to affect anything that he does. Now, let's say six months after he is reelected, he is caught with a couple of hookers in a red convertible with $10,000 worth of cocaine in the trunk and an unregistered firearm on the front seat beside him. And his blood alcohol limit, uh, blood alcohol level is way over the limit. And let's say they haul, they haul Senator Snotwurst in and it hits all the papers. It, uh, you know, big, big gaudy news. And so, of course, there's the obligatory news conference where he's going to come out and grovel. He's supposed to come out and grovel and tell the American public that his behavior over the last weekend was not in line with his core values. That's not who I am, he's supposed to say. But suppose he did something different. I would, I would pay good money. <laughs> I'd pay good money to have someone come out and say something different. I'd love to have him come out and say, look, in my campaign, I solemnly promised that I would not let my faith, which is a very personal and precious thing to me, I was not going to let my faith affect my behavior in Washington, D.C. 
in the slightest if I were to be reelected. And I, I call the American people to witness today, here, now, that I have kept my promise. Always will be God. So, as you should all know by now, we have been taking all this, uh, we've been taking this particular course for going on five years now, and we are, and we are studying hermartiology. What Greek words are used for various sins in the New Testament? Man, we, five years in the same course, we should have learned something right now. The one we're considering today is enubrizo, enubrizo, which means to do despite to, to do despite to. It's only used once in the New Testament. This is a hotbox. In Hebrews 10, 29, it says this, Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. There it is. And hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. To do despite to the Spirit of grace is to grossly undervalue it or to treat it insultingly. And you can treat it insultingly either by direct contempt or by apathetic ignorance. Someone who's given something is very precious and just ignores it. That's doing despite unto it. Or it could be done by direct insult. Now, in this passage, the person concerned, the person that the author of Hebrews is talking about here, has been sanctified in some way. Right? He's been sanctified somehow because it says here he's trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So he is trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, I think clearly this is not the sanctification that is wrought as a result of the effectual call. The effectual call results in justification and then ongoing sanctification, and I don't think this person has experienced that. Why? Well, because they're trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. And yet, it says that the blood of the covenant sanctified them somehow. Uh, the blood of the covenant accomplished some sort of sanctification in their case. So, this must be a person, I think, who is externally called, that is, he's formally a Christian, that is, he's a member of a church, he's part of the visible church, that is, he was baptized and everybody saw him get baptized, but he's not truly converted. He tramples because he's not truly converted. The blood of the covenant that sanctified him really does do that because he is part of the he, he is part of the visible church. So being made a part of the visible church doesn't get you to heaven, but it is a setting apart. It is a consecration of a sort. God don't never change He's So the book I'd like to review this time around in episode 255 is a book called The Thing Is by Rivers, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Rivers Houseel, Houseel, H-O-U-S-E-A-L, Houseel. That's my best shot, Houseel. So I just selected this as my most recent book of the month selection. It's It's a short collection of short stories. It's a small book, hardback book, that is a collection of short stories. And I'm going to begin, like as I did in my, uh, my blog post talking about this, let me begin by talking about how I got this book. I was at the Fight, Laugh, Feast uh, conference in Knoxville just a month or so ago, and I was getting ready to go up and give my, give my talk, and a vendor there had given me a cup of coffee that that's what they were vending. And so I was enjoying my cup of coffee. It was good coffee. 
And while I was standing there just a few minutes uh, before like 10 till or something, going to give my talk, I was holding a cup of coffee and I was talking to the good folks at Noggin Nose Books, uh, Noggin Nose Press. And Noggin Nose Press is the press that publishes this book. And so while standing there, somehow, due no doubt to my clumsiness, I uh, squeezed the cup where the lid came loose on my cup of coffee and sloshed all over the front of my shirt right before I was going to go talk. So Nancy um, moved into uh, action as my emergency squad and headed back up to the hotel room to get a, another shirt for me to change into. And my conversation with the good folks at Noggin Nose was interrupted. Well, then a few weeks uh, go by and I got a package in the mail. And in that package were two books published by Noggin Nose. And, and this book that I'm talking about now was one of them. Now, it's a, this book was nicely designed, very, very attractive book. Uh, the production quality was good. And I opened it up and got sucked right in. It, uh, this, basically, the, the conceit of the book, it, the, the name of the book is The Thing Is. The Thing Is. And each short story revolves around a thing, an object that, that um, plays into the lives of the people interacting with it. The uh, one of the short stories is a misshapen potato. Uh, so this misshapen potato is the centerpiece of this short story. Another, another one. The first one in the book is a, an old typewriter that the person, the narrator of the short story, finds in the road. They find a typewriter, and their interactions with this typewriter is um, described in very entertaining detail. Another one is a clock. So there's a, a clock shop and, a, and an old clock, and everything revolves around this particular clock. And the people in the stories are all interacting in each story with this thing. So that, thus the name of the book, The Thing Is. The thing that's really striking about this, and I was just mulling, uh, mulling on this uh, factor, this, the author, Rivers, can really write. She's really, really good. And I was thinking about what is it that I like about good writing? I really like it when a writer is in the same path that I'm in, about two steps ahead of me. So I'm reading along, and I'm starting to think in a certain groove, which they anticipate because they're two feet ahead of me on the path. And then they do something surprising. They, uh, they lead me in a particular direction, and sure enough, I'm going in that direction. And I'm thinking something like, oh, no, that would be a cliche if, if they were to do that. And then they surprise me with some sort of twist on the cliche or some sort of thing that makes me laugh or smile. This, um, this book has that kind of thing. She's just really good. So, Noggin Knows Press. The name of the book is The Thing Is. I commend it to you heartily. I think you'll really enjoy it.